When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, July 26, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by our own Jack Farley and our guest, Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Good to be here, Ash. So uh, as we look at markets here, S&P uh, at a 52-week high, once again, uh, another record. Tesla is reporting earnings as we speak. We'll get to that in just a moment. Talking of Tesla, one of Tesla's most bullish investors, Kathy Wood, kicks off a five-part mega interview with Real Vision with Kirill Sokolov from 13D. We'll take a look a little later in the show. Jack, what are you watching? Well, where else, Ash, other than on Real Vision? What I got my eye on is that for the second day in a row, uh, Chinese stocks are emitting a great distress signal with the Golden Dragon Index, which is an index of Chinese stocks that are listed in the United States via ADRs or American Depository Receipts. That um, uh, the index is down uh, 14% over the past two days, which is the greatest, Ash, the greatest two-day decline since 2008. Uh, Ash, what's on your radar? Yeah, talking about big moves, uh, Bitcoin jumping dramatically here uh, today in the last, uh, it looks like since we last did this show, Jack, uh, it's up 24%. So significant moves uh, right now in Bitcoin. We're going to talk more about that later in the show. Looks like the last trade there, 39,193. Uh, it was up over 40,000 a few minutes ago. Obviously, a lot of volatility that we're seeing in that space. Uh, all that and more today. But first, gentlemen, uh, Darius, tell us what's on your mind. What are you looking at right now? Yeah, thanks, Ash. I'd say the number one thing that kind of has my attention today, uh, aside from the Bitcoin news, um, is the fact that we saw a pretty meaningful push higher in the 10-year break-even rate. Um, we're at 240 now. That's right at the upper boundary of our probable range. Uh, but what's most important about that is that it's above, above our medium-term price regime signal line. So if it could stay above 2537, that would be a move back towards inflationary pressure being priced into the long end of, of the fixed income market that will obviously have ripple implications for what sector and style factor leadership we'll see in the equity market and obviously a potential recovery in, in some of these commodity, these beleaguered commodity asset classes. Yeah, Jack, jump in. Thanks, Ash. Yeah, just for the people at home, uh, what break even is the inflation break even, what the market uh, is pricing in forward inflation will be. It's subtracted from the TIPS yield or the Treasury Inflation Protected Security. So I know Darius has got his eye on the macro. We definitely want to get into that. Um, but Ash, you want to start just by talking about this Kathy Wood interview? They're not even the Kathy Wood. It's the first part where yeah. every single day this week is going to be a, a part of an interview with Kathy Wood and the great uh, Carol Sokoloff. Yeah, part one of five out today. Let's just take a look at the clip here. Uh, this is with Carol and uh, and Kathy Wood. Uh, I think it's an insightful clip, and, and we'll talk about it in just a second. You said that almost half of the S&P is threatened. The company is in those indexes 
are there because of the past 40 years. If disruptive innovation is going to be as pervasive as you think, many of these companies are going to be sidelines at best with consolidations, bankruptcies, restructurings. So traditional benchmarks may not be able to offer good returns. And the hardest hit would be those very companies the past decade that juiced earnings rather than investing in the future. In your own words, the other side of disruptive innovation is creative destruction. Can you please elaborate on this for us? Yes, well, I'll start by saying if you take the S&P 500, for example, and you look back to its earliest days, the average lifespan of a company back then was 100 years. Uh, today, we're down to 20, we're probably at fewer than 25 years. And we think given the kind of uh, creative destruction that is taking place and the innovation that's taking place, that that is going to drop towards 10, 10 years, perhaps below 10 years. Uh, so right there, you can see um, how much change has already happened. And yet we believe we are on the cusp of more change than has ever happened. Well, there you have it. Creative destruction. Joseph Schumpeter, of course. Uh, innovation creates winners, but it also destroys uh, in harm's way, in Kathy's view, uh, energy, financial services. And I was also struck by that statistic about how the S&P 500 companies had a 100-year lifespan, now down to a 25-year lifespan. Really does sound like further evidence of the exponential age. Jack, what are your thoughts? Well, Ash, I have to say that um, you know Kathy Wood is such a positive person, and and her framework is often put in such positive terms. Um, but if you think about it, you know there are going to be winners and losers, and if you look at these uh, antiquated industries, I think that that she would say um, are perhaps antiquated. Um, yeah, they are very vulnerable to disruption, and I really glommed onto what Kirill was saying about companies boosting their you know, earnings per share, not by actually boosting their earnings, but by with reducing the, the shares, by buying back their own stock, so to goose their, their EPS or their earnings per share. Um, yeah. And I, I look at a stock like Tesla or other companies that are you know, um, growing rapidly growing tech stocks, and I think that venture capitalists and early you know, growth investors have been all too willing to forgive um, share dilution, and, and they actually you know, are kind of looking for the opposite. They don't mind. You know, Tesla has diluted something. You know, its share count has almost doubled since its, its IPO in 2010 or, or 2011, um, and you know, its share price has, has skyrocketed. Meanwhile, the companies, the sort of old guard of technology, IBM, Intel, General Electric, they've been buying back their stock like mad, hoping that it increases their stock price, but you know, the, the results have been lackluster because they haven't been investing uh, in innovation, and, and they're behind. But um, when Kathy says it, it sounds optimistic. That, that sounds <laughs> because we're looking at the other side of that coin, right? We're looking at where the glass is half full. Definitely. Uh, yeah, Darius, I, I want to ask you, uh, what do you think about creative disruption? Do you think that, do you agree that 50% of the S&P 500 is vulnerable to, you know, going the way of the dodo bird? Most likely, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly believe, I'm a huge fan of Kathy Wood and what she's doing over there at ARC. She makes uh, the destruction of the institutions that we're likely to see as we progress deeper into this fourth turning um, sound like something that's really positive. But I mean, the reality is, is that, the, you know, the average American worker and, and consumer 
has really got a raw deal over the past 20 years. And I'll tweet this out. Um, sorry, I didn't give you a chart ahead of time. But, you know, the most important chart, at least in U.S. macro, and I would argue probably for global macro, because it is, you know, contributing to the sea change we've seen in fiscal policy. It's obviously contributed to, um, you know, the, the aggressive aggression that we've seen in monetary policy in the post-crisis era is the relationship between employee compensation as a percent of national income relative to corporate profits as a percent of national income. That was a very stable relationship for 50, 60, 70 years prior to 2000. And then in 2000, you've seen a massive reversal of, that, of those relationships. And part of the reason for that, obviously, you've had globalization, China joined the W2 in 2001 and all the things that uh, came along with that. Um, you obviously had you know, sort of monetary policy contributing to the development of monopsonies across a lot of our industries and allowing big companies to get bigger um, and having more bargaining power over, over labor. And then obviously, you've seen the proliferation of private equity industry, mergers and acquisitions, all these things have really contributed to a very real and material zeitgeist out there uh, amongst the U.S. worker and the U.S. populace, which is why, in my opinion, you've seen a sort of bipartisan shift left in support of more fiscal largesse. And that's something we think will need to increasingly be financed by the Fed over the long term. And that's something um, obviously will be here to stay as we go throughout this fourth turning. So um, it's positive if you're Kathy Wood. It's quite negative if you're a lot of other people. But ultimately, we're going to see a lot of institutions uh, kind of really change their shape and their stripes so as we as we you know dig deeper into this decade. Yeah, let me jump in there real quick. Kathy Wood has, I believe, a $3,000 price target out on Tesla right now, just crossing the wire. Uh, Tesla has beat uh, on adjusted EPS actual one dollar and 45 cents per share estimate 97 cents also looks like a, a beat by a narrow margin on the top line revenue uh, 11 spot 96 billion estimated 11.36 billion dollars yeah uh, I'm glad I'm not short that stock I'm gonna have to get into the weeds later because it, it just came down the news the pipe like uh, 10 minutes ago uh, but ash I, I want to say Kathy now uh, arc has their three thousand dollar price target. I remember when Kathy initiated uh, the $4,000 price target before Tesla split. So Tesla um, was much, much smaller, and it sounded 4000 And people were like, $4,000? Are you kidding me? That's, that's crazy. That's like five times the price. But it, actually, if you calculate uh, and you, uh, you know, if you include the um, share split, it actually did get to $4,000. So likewise, the stock now at somewhere at 660 670 uh, she's saying 3000 and that is a, a huge, huge um, call. And by the way, that's not her bull case. I believe that is her base case. And her bear case, okay. I think, is also somewhere is north of $1,000. So I have to say, I just I respect Kathy and Ark um, making a bold call like that because I know you know so many in the analyst game, you know, uh, Apple's at $140, and they're like, oh, my, my bull case is $141, my bear case is $139, <laughs> and they sort of just follow the index. And so I, I respect people, whether it's you know, saying Tesla's going to go to $3,000 or to $100, I respect people making a, a, a bold call. Ash? Yeah, I, 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 the other thing I would say, just two quick points. First of all, the Tesla split, August 2020, split five for one. That's where you get the adjustment number. Uh, but you know, I, I watched the interview, the all of part one today, and the thing that was so compelling to me is just how data driven uh, Kathy's case is. You know, I mean, she's not talking about this in kind of this 
the high level philosophical language. She's looking at this and putting really hard analytic numbers and metrics around everything that she's thinking about, trying to understand not where the puck is, but where the puck is going. I, I just think it's incredible uh, insight and uh, obviously something that's very much uh, congruent with this view of an exponential age. But again, and this is the point, I think it was an interesting clip that we chose for that reason. There are going to be winners and there are also going to be losers. So interesting to think about how that balances and how that offsets. Well, I, the one thing I would say before that is, do we see the balance of losers pile up before we see an appropriate response out of the authorities to sort of offset that from the perspective of national income and, and, and people's sort of livelihoods and, and, and happiness? I don't know what the answer to that is. It's either going to be in response to that or it's going to be preemptive. Obviously, you got you know the Biden agenda, I would argue, is trying to be preemptive on, on all that creative destruction and what that means for the American, you know, voter, the American consumer, but ultimately it could be a quite, quite the messy process over the next day. Yeah. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Darius, unpack that point a little bit. Give us a little bit of a 50,000-foot view of what you mean uh, by the Biden administration trying to get ahead of creative destruction. What's the big picture case that you're seeing out of the administration? Yeah, I, I think the number one thing that we've learned from Biden, I think, came last week. I want to say it was the middle of last week when in response to sort of, uh, he was at the town hall meeting where he said, you know, we got sort of grilled on his policies and, the, you know, how they're perpetuating labor shortages and things of that nature. And he basically came out and said it, which I'm not sure he really meant to, but obviously he's getting up there. He basically said, yeah, this is the whole point, raise wages. Right? Like it, it's, he's effectively saying he's, he's making a clear and cogent statement that he, that the balance of, of income that has shifted to corporate America needs to start going back in the other direction. And they're, they're clearly, you know, in terms of the American Jobs Plan and all the other things that they want to do around families and you know, sort of expanded infrastructure. To me, it's pretty clear that that's what their that's what their primary focus is. They're reacting to sort of all those demands coming from not only the left but also, you know, I would argue the center, you know, the center right is is argue, you know, that's shifted left as well in terms of you know the last administration. So, um, you know, this is this is going to be an ongoing story. You know, if we're talking about it today, we're going to be talking about it ten times more in three or four or five years. Yeah, as you say, left and right seem to agree on this point. I would add labor share of income. If you look at the chart uh, from the St. Louis Fed FRED database, uh, the name of the data series is, well, it's a long, nasty string of numbers and letters, but it's the share of labor compensation in GDP uh, at current national prices for the United States uh, at around 2064, uh, now down to 59. Jack, jump in on the macro case. Questions for Darius. Uh, if I may, Ash, I'm just going to take a, a little bit of a left turn and talk about China. Um, yeah. The, 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 the uh, regulation from uh, the Chinese government continues to be very burdensome, with, with the regulatory authorities saying today that for-profit education essentially should not exist, and that—let um, me find the exact quote—but that— uh, the, that the education sector has been, quote, hijacked by capital. So the Chinese government finally rediscovering uh, Marxist-Leninism after about 40 years. Um, but <laughs> After everybody in the Pulitzer got rich. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And J.P. Morgan Chase calling it a worst case became a reality. So the Tao education and New Oriental stock fall uh, around 30 percent today, and I think actually much more um, from um, Thursday. So all in all, down from about $8 to $2. So a decline of just over 70 percent. 
um, things are getting quite ugly. And it's not just sort of these names, these stocks that you've never heard of. Think of Tencent, um, you know, that legendary media. I mean, I think they own uh, Riot Games, which which owns Fortnite um, and much, much more. Um, at February 12th, they were at $99. Again, this is the ADRs, so d listed in dollars. Uh, um, Ash, you want to guess where Tencent is now? I don't follow the stock, Jack. Give us a give us a look. 60. So it's a decline of about um, about about forty percent in a in a high quality stock. So this is you're seeing some yeah. serious contagion, not just from these microcap stocks. If we actually um, put up a chart now, I'm going to show the Golden Dragon Index, which is a basket of tech stock of Chinese stocks that are owned um, via the ADRs. I think the biggest holding is Neo, and then JD.com, Alibaba, um, Billy Billy, that sort of social network. Thing. These are so that is ma major yeah. names. Yeah, major, major name. So that's down from over 20,000 to now 11,000, a serious decline. And as I said in the open, um, this is a decline over the past two days of 14%, which is the largest two-day two decline um, since 2008. Um, so now let, let's put that chart down. Um, Darius, we actually have a question from uh, the audience member. Um, they say, Matt P wants to know, what are Darius's thoughts on the Chinese tech sell-off? Are valuations starting to get interesting? I'm sure valuations are getting interesting, but the problem with valuation, as it, through the lens of macro, is that valuation often doesn't work on the time frame that you want it to. You know, you have an event catalyst like this being driven by a policy that's inherently unmodelable. I don't know that valuation is really the the the, the name of the game here. What's really happening, and I've talked about this on, on the program, you know, several times, is you know the Western world is separating from the Eastern world in terms of you know the the the, the digital revolution and, and all the development that we're seeing therein. And to some degree, I would argue everything that we're seeing that it, for, that, that's negative for these Chinese stocks is incrementally positive for their U.S. counterparts because it means it's sort of you're creating two poles whereby the U.S. companies can dominate in this sort of hemisphere and in this and in the Western hemisphere with respect to all these services, whereas the Chinese companies are increasingly seemingly increasingly uh, hampered by regulation and and kind of the heavy hand of the Chinese government. So I don't know that this is something that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, obviously, if you heard uh, Xi Jinping's comments today about the U.S.-China relationship being, you know, very strained and in a stalemate, you know, to me, this is something that's going to be developing for an extended period of time. And that, and I could argue that now that these companies, at least the Chinese companies, are big enough and powerful enough, they can now be wielded by the government to actually further appeal to Burroughs' goals, you know, societal goals and things of that nature. So it could be something that's really long term in terms of the hampering the overall profitability of these companies relative to the U.S. counterparts. So, no, I would argue valuation is probably not um, an effective metric to use to, uh, to, to determine to, to start you know, investing in these companies. Real quick, talking of overall profitability, to switch gears here a little bit, I'm looking right now that $1.14 in gap net income reported by Tesla up 10x from Q2 uh, 2020. So, significant move uh, in terms of the top line. Yeah, well, I would say uh, when your net, when your profit margins are so narrow, I think quoting like prof, you know, oh, if if I made one dollar last year and I made a thousand dollar this year, that's an increase of, uh, you know, a thousand percent, right? So, yeah. I, or, or more than that. Or, um, anyway, but a, bi but a billion dollars net income for the quarter is non-trivial. Right. That's that's yeah, not a company that is. And we have to see the breakdown where it comes from. I have yeah, I got internal dynamics. You got to look at the um, you know zero e, um, emission vehicle credits that are you know very uh, generous in California. Got to right. look at how much money they've gained or lost on Bitcoin. Got to you know got to get into the weeds, Ash, before you make a make a call. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, just based on that number, of course, yeah, it sounds like a good headline number. number still nonetheless very positive. Yeah. But we have to dig down into the internal dynamics to be sure. Absolutely right, Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, Ash, you want to go Bitcoin, or do you want to uh, walk into the, the the woods of macro with Darius? What's what's going on? You walk well, into the woods. <laughs> we can we can take a stroll into the woods. That sounds uh, that sounds very dark and sinister, Jack. Woods are good. Listen, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know if uh, you guys are having problems, but I just saw your uh, images freeze, and you're back again. Hopefully, uh, you've got picture at home. Looks like Darius may have uh, just dropped off for a second, but hopefully, we will get him back. In the in the meantime, uh, let's talk about what is happening right now uh, in Bitcoin because the price action is pretty extraordinary. Uh, Here's what we know: strong upward price action, as I just said. Um, You know, when we did the show on Friday. The price was thirty-two thousand four hundred and thirty on Bitcoin. Uh, now, as we have this conversation, thirty-eight thousand four hundred fourteen. As we were prepping for this show a few minutes before we went live, it was over forty thousand. Uh, from basically from that number uh, to uh, where we were from the close on Friday, uh, market close on the equity markets uh, to. Uh, the 40,000 was a 24% ride up. Here's what's happening. So, first, there was some news uh, earlier this morning uh, that folks uh, had seen that Amazon had posted a blockchain strategy position. There was some buzz about whether that was uh, potentially driving price action. But everybody I know in the space right now, in the cryptocurrency digital asset space, is talking about Tether. Uh, so right now, Bloomberg uh, is reporting an investigation by DOJ, the Department of Justice, into Tether. So we need to be very careful. It's quite early. This is an incredibly opaque story. It's incredibly confusing. But we're going to try and talk through some of it right now uh, to get a sense of what's happening in the space. Let me just read this quote from Bloomberg. Uh, quote, Tether's pivotal role in the crypto ecosystem is now well known because the token is widely used to trade Bitcoin. But the Justice Department investigation is focused on conduct that occurred years ago when Tether was in its more nascent stages. Specifically, federal prosecutors are scrutinizing whether Tether concealed from banks that transactions were linked to crypto, said three people with direct knowledge of the matter who asked not to be named because the probe is confidential. Uh, It then goes on to say uh, that while it's unclear whether Tether, the company, was a target of an earlier review. The current focus on bank fraud charges suggests prosecutors may have moved on, may have moved on from pursuing a case tied to market manipulation. Okay, this is really, uh, this is gets a little bit confusing here, but let's see if we can kind of walk through what's going on. First of all, important point to make. Uh, obviously, uh, no charges have yet been brought. We live in a country where we are innocent until proven guilty, so too of corporations. At this point, no charges have been brought against Tether. However, uh, one has to wonder, this this is obviously coming from very good sourcing out of Bloomberg, or they wouldn't have written that story. Uh, three independent sources confirming that an investigation is ongoing. What might this mean? How might it be affecting markets? Well, there is a thesis out there uh, that as folks who are in international markets without dollar-denominated banking access, as they flee to Tether, they could be moving into uh, Bitcoin. So this is a little bit convoluted, uh, but leaving uh, Tether to move into Bitcoin would cause, obviously, an increase in price uh, of Bitcoin as that caught a bid. If there were flows coming out of Tether uh, and into Bitcoin. Jack, am I describing this at all well? Does this make any sense at all? 
It makes a lot of sense, Ash. And I have to say, when I first saw the meteoric rise of all crypto assets today, I said, hmm, a lot of this is being attributed to the Amazon posting, that Amazon posted a job for a, some blockchain job that, you know, I mean, other block, um, crypto websites posted about last week, and it started at eight in the morning today. Like, I don't think this is it. It doesn't pass the smell test. Uh, then I saw all this news about Tether, and I said, hmm, what if people are actually getting a little bit bearish on Tether? Of course, Tether is always worth $1, so the price of Tether can never go down. But when people flow out of Tether into Bitcoin, that will cause a result uh, in Bitcoin. But I said, mm, Jack, you're, you're a little bit crazy. Then I talked to you, Ash, and you were having the same sort of hunch. Um, so yeah, because you know, when, when you say, oh, I'm long the dollar, you hear people say that, or I'm short the dollar, what does it really mean? Does it mean, oh, I have $10 in the pocket, in my pocket, I'm long the dollar? No, it means you're short the euro, you're short the Brazilian real, you're short something right. relative to something else. So mm -hmm. uh, you know, if the tether goes down in price or people are trying to get out of it, that would cause a spike in, in crypto assets. Darius, does that make sense to you? Or, or Ash and I, we, we need to uh, you know, stop, stop taking our crazy pills. No, not at all. It, it makes it makes perfect sense. Um, you know, the only thing I would add is that you know we've seen this sort of episodic price spike, ball spike in Bitcoin. Uh, for the viewers who don't know, uh, we run up this thing called our volatility adjusted momentum signal. And for most assets, volatility is inversely correlated with price. Uh, for right. Bitcoin and most other crypto assets, volatility is actually positively correlated with price. So you're seeing this big price gap higher, big candle higher um, as a function of news. And so the real question for investors is. Can Bitcoin not only get above 41,000, which would be our signal line for a positive price trend, um, can it get above 41,000 and more importantly, stay there? And not only just stay there, but can you continue to sequence you know, big candles, higher, you know, higher volatility events? Because again, if you see those two things uh, together, Bitcoin's going to go from bearish uh, from the perspective of a volatility adjusted momentum signaling process to bullish. And I think if we go to bullish, that's where you're going to see a lot more asset flows come out of your more traditional assets like commodities. You know, like some of the um, you know reflationary equities and backed into this space, like a lot of what we saw kind of in Q4, Q1 of this year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. Ash, you mind if I say, say something? No, jump in. Sure. Uh, well, I think what Darius uh, made is a very good point. In the world of equities, uh, you know, um, there's something called put skew, which is puts are more expensive than calls generally because that's the way that stocks work. It's called uh, um, elevator down, stairs up. Things grind, grind, grind higher. They grind higher, grind higher. And then where there's a, it goes down, it crashes, or it's a, quite a violent spike. In the world of Bitcoin, it's very interesting. It's the exact opposite. When it goes down, it's sort of drifting, drifting lower. But then you have these momentous things where you know it can, it can double within a course of three weeks. Um, so I want to explain that. But Ash, do you want to just um, explain a little bit about the very odd volatility signatures that are happening in uh, the derivatives market, I guess not so much the options, but more the yeah. futures, particularly the the perpetual futures. 
Yeah, in Bitcoin, that's that's an important point, and I'm so glad you brought that up, Jack, because it is such an unusual pattern that we see the the uh, kind of the uh, drift down uh, spike up pattern here in Bitcoin. It is an important distinction, but I just want to hit a couple of more points. First of all, this upside uh, volatility we're seeing now pretty much across the crypto complex. Uh, for example, uh, Ethereum right now seven days up 25.2 percent, now trading at 2267, 2267. But let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are being mentioned right now about Tether. Now, this is not part of the historical. Uh, this is something that's distinct, I should say, uh, from this alleged historical investigation that Bloomberg is reporting on. So, and again, we need to be very careful about this, but let's just throw some data points out there. So, Tether uh, right now is the third largest coin by market cap. It's over $80 billion. Uh, and there have been some questions, questions uh, about Tether's reserves. Their own statement, now, obviously, it's a stable coin. It has to be backed by something. Uh, it could be algorithmic in the case of some stable coins, but in the case of Tether, it's backed by hard reserves uh, in the reporting uh, that Tether provides. However, less than 3% of those reserves are in US dollars. More than 50% is in commercial paper. Now, here's an interesting thing. A few days ago, Deirdre Boson from uh, from uh, CNBC, Deirdre Bosa did this interview uh, with three senior Tether executives, rather two senior Tether executives, uh, one of whom is the general counsel of the firm. Uh, and they declined, they said, quote, we don't disclose our commercial partners when asked about the source of the commercial paper that backs Tether. Now, this is very important. There have been rumors uh, that the just rumors at this phase that Tether is backed predominantly by Chinese commercial paper. Uh, Deirdre Boson put that question to the Tether executives. They declined to answer. Uh, they would only say that it was backed by international uh, commercial paper. Commercial paper are uh, short term unsecured debt obligations, uh, but they would not disclose the national origin of that commercial paper. Again, there's been speculation uh, that it is Chinese commercial paper. We don't know that. They declined to answer uh, that question. You raise another really important and interesting point, Jack, uh, about the role that derivatives markets are playing right now uh, in the price uh, of, of Bitcoin. So uh, there's some great reporting coming out of Coindesk by Ankar Godbol, who talks about this. There is a an $8,000 spread on a spike today between perpetual futures and spot markets. Perpetual futures are effectively futures contracts that never expire. Why would you buy a futures contract that never expires? Jack, I asked you this offline. You gave the answer correctly in one second, and that answer is? Leverage. <laughs> leverage. Uh, you were able to to buy until very recently, the last few days, at 100x leverage. Uh, FTX and some of the other exchanges now, I believe, have gone down from 100x to 20x, which is still an extraordinarily high number uh, for leverage, cutting from 100x to 20x over at FTX. But there's also that something that's happening uh, on the uh, on the side of. What's the the skew uh, relative to the longs to the shorts? It appears that shorts are getting shaken out of this trade. Let me just give you something here that's important. It's difficult. Again, it's a little challenging to understand. Uh, this is on-chain data. Let me just read this quote to you from Amkar Godbol coming to us from Coindesk. Quote, according to data source Coin Analyze, this is an on-chain data metrics provider, major exchanges, including Binance, have liquidated futures positions worth more than $650 million today. This is today. Of that, short liquidations account for almost 
85% or $550 million. The data shows that future market positioning was skewed bearish. The number of open futures contracts rose steadily since late May to hit a two-month high last week as traders took short positions. Jack, you and I were talking a little bit earlier uh, whether or not this was a basis trade. Obviously, this is something that's very complicated, but it's pretty clear from some of this on-chain data and some of the exchange data that it appears that derivatives markets are having a significant role in moving the spot markets. Jack, what are your thoughts? Well, well, there's no doubt, Ash, that the basis trade was a mainstay in the advanced crypto trading world, uh, where you exploit the contango of the futures curve and you sell the futures at say fifty-five thousand, whatever, and you and you actually buy the spot price at forty-five thousand. I'm just making these numbers up, and then gradually those things converge, and you you take adv- take advantage of that. Uh, the only risk is, is counterparty risk that you know the site that you have your position on doesn't disappear overnight. Um, those trades got blown out about two months ago. When uh, Bitcoin futures actually crashed more than spot price, even though spot price crashed a ton, um, so it could be some of those people are continuing to do that basis trade, and they got um, liquidated. They were forced out of it. I uh, would believe that a lot of those short positions are not naked, sh- you know, selling um, naked short positions in the futures market. That would be a pretty dangerous game. Obviously, the most you can gain is 100, percent um, and the 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 most you can lose is is infinite. Um, which actually sure. does happen because Bitcoin has these these moves higher. Um, I actually can we can we go back to the macro world? We only have a few minutes left. Yeah. Um, Darius, how has your outlook evolved on reflation, deflation, the ten-year yield? I know you said that the inflation break-even uh, marched higher five basis points today. What did that signal to you in terms of um, you know where we are in the, in the cycle? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, before I ask that, let me uh, one final thought on Bitcoin. Yeah. You see a liquidation of short positions in any asset market where you're effectively creating scope for a major decline because the shorts don't have to cover on the way down as, as you know the way they would if the, all those positions were maintained. So um, we have 34% of probable downside to the lower end of our uh, lower end of our range, uh, 27,000 in Bitcoin. If it can't dramatically, if it can't really sustain itself above 41,000 over the next week or two, it's probably going back to 27,000. So keep 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 that on. Uh, you know, it's not. This is not a coast is clear signal for that particular asset yet. In um, fact, and then, in fact, exactly to your point, that's what the bears would say that they would fear that there'd be a snapback effect. Um, the question is, um, how do these people who want to exit the tether trade? How do they get out? I mean, it's it's just a very unclear situation, right? And that yeah. unclear a lack of clarity sort of implies, you know, maybe some potential risk. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, this is this is always been. <laughs> With this developing asset class, it's obviously got a lot of you know reward to the upside, but there's a lot of a lot of volatility you have to deal with as an investor along the way. You know, obviously coming from regulation and things of that nature. But uh, going back to your question, Jack, uh, on the break even, so uh, we're right at 240 for the 10 year break even. Um, you know, we, that's right at the upper boundary of our probable range, so we don't expect it to move much higher from there. Um, you know, if we if we see a sustained breakout above 239, however, that would rescue the upside in the range and suggest that inflationary pressures are actually starting to rebuild again. We think that's a low probability event. Our market regime signaling process is currently in Goldilocks. We think, you know, the 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 rate that we talked about this obviously many times, but our projections for inflation uh, are have you know disinflation pretty persistently over the next 12 month time horizon. So uh, it's not something we expect to be sustained. But it's certainly, obviously, a market risk given the positioning associated with you know investors being forced to crowd out of reflation names. I mean, if you look at the S and P sectors, 
and you break them down by what's bullish, what's neutral, what's bearish from the perspective of volatility adjusted momentum signaling process. And energy and materials are the only ones that are bearish. And you look at what's bullish, you know, it's all the stuff that benefits from disinflation from lower real interest rates, like consumer discretionary, utilities, staples, tech, and, and communication services. So that would be a major pain trade. Again, I, I think that's a low probability event. We've seen a lot of the implied volatility premium in a lot of the sectors and style factors that would benefit from inflation actually swing to discounts. And what that means is that investors are no longer overly fearful or overly short those exposures, which you know, which would imply you know, a lot of dealer hedging that could potentially get unwound in the direction of higher prices. That's no longer uh, the case anymore in terms of the setup. So I don't really see a you know, material risk of a sustained reflation pain trade, but it certainly is something that looked like it you know, could have commenced today. Yeah. Talking of pain trades, I'm looking here at the uh, comments in YouTube, uh, and someone just said, Keon Archer, uh, move from Tether to USDC. Keon, the challenge is, I don't think that a lot of the people who are in overseas markets who don't have access to dollar-backed banking uh, have the ability to get into regulated US stable coins like Circle. And that's the challenge. And Darius, uh, to your point, that's the risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. But on, the other, on the other hand, Ash, if you don't live in America, you can trade crypto options. So, you do get to sort of... Uh, Get that, get that uh, access. Um, Ash, I know we're running very low on yeah. time, but just before we end, I want to mention that uh, we talked about Kirill Sokolov's interview with Kathy yeah. Wood that will be on the essential tier of Real Vision. Today was just part one. Uh, we got five more parts or four more parts. It's a five-part series. And if you're not a member of Real Vision, but you want to watch it, um, you've got to become a member of Real Vision. And you can do so by clicking the link in the description below. Ash? And the whole two and a half hour Kathy Wood Kirill Sokolov interview drops. Is it on Friday? I believe so. Fantastic. Looking forward to seeing it. Jack Darius, the only problem with being on air with you two guys is we had about two and a half hours of content and about 30 minutes <laughs> to do it in. No worries, man. We'll catch you next time. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> A high problem quality to problem to have. Jack Darius, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, thank you for watching. Thanks, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.